Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by Terry Teachout for another conversation in our series on noirs and noir-adjacent films. Today, I should say, Terry Teachout hosts me. It's our first live <laughs> podcast. I'm here with him sitting around the table talking movies with the biography of John Wayne on the table. Terry, thanks for joining me again. It's a wonderful idea to talk about Nicholas Ray, and especially on Dangerous Ground. I think it's a movie that now, and perhaps for two generations even, has had quite a fame, but is not seen as much as it should be. Well, it was inaccessible for a while, and it wasn't released on home video until, I think, three or four years ago. So people knew about it, in particular because it was one of Bernard Herrmann's best non-Hitchcock scores, but most people hadn't seen it. And then it was released on home video, started getting shown on TCM, and now it's not just a title in a filmography, but uh, a film of which people, especially people interested in Nicholas Ray, are very conscious, as well they should be. This is early Nicholas Ray, close to his debut with They Live by Night. It's full of action scenes, chases in the car, especially in the latter half of the movie, but also the police raids in the first half that are filmed with a certain verve and a sense of urgency that comes from his love of things like handheld camera shots. I think these are some of the earliest handheld camera shots to be seen in more films. There's not many of them, but boy, do they jump out at you. So the immediacy, you used exactly the right word there. You really feel like you're there. You're not on any kind of, I mean, some of those scenes were done on sound stages, but you're not feeling like it's a sound stage. You're feeling like you're in the middle of a fight. So he has an unusual ability that is already on display to grab you and to convince you that a human drama that happens in the way I see it, this is a study of moments. Loneliness, isolation, alienation, all the great qualities of modernity, the qualities of which Noir partakes, and the man who is enacting them is one of the great film actors of this generation, and somebody for whom these qualities in his acting, he was apparently a very nice man in life, but in his acting, they're second nature. Nobody is better at projecting these alarming interior states than Roy. And in this film, he goes all the way from the most extreme kind of something, I obviously meant to border on sadism, uh, to a transformation, a film death, a profound transformation. That is not the stuff of an ordinary crime film. That's a Nicholas Wright film right there. Yes, exactly. I started watching Robert Ryan in uh, The Wild Bunch. What a seasoned, old, recognizably American, but also memorable character. But of course, worlds away from the gritty black-and-white noir Robert Ryan of the 40s and 50s. I think most people under, under the age of, at this point, under the age of 50, first encountered Ryan through the Wild Bunch. Of course, what we're seeing there is, if you can imagine the Ryan character of noir not having died, but having lived into a, a disillusioned, emotionally paralyzed old age, uh, it, it really hooks up with the earlier portrayals. But of course you have to have seen them. And I was lucky I came along and became interested in movies at a time when people were first starting to talk about noir in a serious way. You heard a lot about Ryan immediately because he figures in so many of the best of these films. And I jumped straight to On Dangerous Ground from The Wild Bunch, 20 years apart, and wow. it was worlds away. <laughs> but it, it, it taught me all of a sudden that there's so much more to this actor. 
and at the same time that there's a certain core you put it very well modernity is somehow tied up with loneliness and alienation and that's because of what we always insist on which is our individualism and robert ryan had an almost unique attachment to roles where a man who really wants to live up to justice or to a certain ideal of honor is confronted with the monstrous tasks of justice in the wild bunch he starts on the wrong side of the law but then he actually dedicates himself to keeping his word to the law and bringing his old friends to justice and agonizes more and more over what a monstrous acts this requires. Of course, we've already covered the Wild Bunch on the podcast. In the case of On Dangerous Ground, he is a lawman from the beginning. It's just that he grows crazier and crazier as the requirements of justice and facing, in this case, uh, a city where cops are killed is a cop who has to live with cop killers that he can't find, and this is what drives him crazy. And again, you see how the quest for justice makes him an individual in the worst way. He's the one man who can never let go of the job. Everybody else has a wife. They have families. He has only to live with himself. That reminds me of one of the most telling lines in the film, when one of his partners says to him, asks him, what's with you? And he says, nothing's with me. What... What a perfect line that completely embodies him. I was going to say, I mean, we were talking about the, the Wild Bunch in which he's working both sides of the street, and here in On Dangerous Ground, we see the two extreme sides of his personality. In his youth in Hollywood, he was known as a heavy. And the film, I think, that probably first gave a splash to his reputation was Edward Dimitri's Crossfire, in which he portrays a murderous anti-Semitic bigot. Brian, he hated playing films like that. He, he was a he was a, a good standard issue, a, a popular front liberal, and a very decent guy. And uh, it, I think it puzzled him that he was often asked to play these kinds of roles. But the fact that he was so good at them, that he had ex- access to these emotions all the way to the end of his career, uh, and and the great uh, uh, film that he did with uh, Spencer Tracy. Uh, I'm having trouble with names today. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Spencer Tracy is the one-armed man. Um, Bad Dad Blackrock. Yeah, Bad Dad Blackrock. And, you know, and he, he was always able to draw on the black end of the emotional scale. Uh, and, of course, we forget we're talking about a man who was also distinguished as a stage actor and whose very last screen appearance was in the film version of The Iceman Cometh. We're talking about... We're talking about an artist who just happened to play a bunch of really shocking heavies in a very convincing way. Yeah, and On Dangerous Ground gives him an unusual uh, opportunity to switch from uh, this heavy uh, he he portrayed so well so often to a a completely different situation. The character is the same, you recognize him, you... He's, he's in no way strange, but you see how strange the world becomes to him as halfway through the movie, we shift out of the city, upstate, into the snow, and all of a sudden, he's confronted with the one thing he hadn't seen before, which is somebody who's utterly helpless. Maybe we need a little synopsis here before we go on, just to orient those who haven't seen the film. Uh, Ryan plays a police detective in a city. It's It could be New York. It could be Los Angeles. It's just... The, the dark noir city. His name is Jim Wilson. Uh, he's a good cop. He's a moral cop, but he, he is known 
for beating it out of the suspects. Uh, he's getting a bad reputation for it. He's actually endangering his ability to function as a policeman. Uh, and uh, we see him in the first half hour of the film. Now, he's pursuing uh, a really vicious thug. And he treats the people he deals with as viciously as they behave, uh, to the horror of the police chief, to the horror of his partners. Um, they understand that, that um, something is amiss here. And in the very brief glimpses that we get of, of Jim Wilson in his shabby little uh, one-room apartment, we realize that he has no private life. Uh, he was a, an, a school athlete. He was probably very likable. But something went wrong along the way, and now he is a man trapped in the web of loneliness. So the police chief, who's played by Ed Bagley Sr., says, you can't go on like this. We've got to get you out of town. And he sends him into the country, into the mountains, uh, probably a couple hours drive away from the city, um, to help with a rape, the rape murder of a child, to help out the local police department. The father of the child is played by Ward Bond, about whom we'll have more to say a little later. Such an interesting actor. In the course of pursuing this culprit, they realize that it's the younger brother of a young woman who lives in the country, played by Ida Lupino, who is blind. That the boy is not just a monster, but somebody who is deeply emotionally disturbed and uh, needs institutionalization. During this middle part of the film, Ward Bond is portrayed as a, as a father who's been driven mad by grief and rage and is absolutely prepared to kill this boy as soon as he finds him. Um, and uh, Robert Ryan's prepared to go along with that, too. That fits in with his, his sense of self. But when he meets Ida Lupino, he realizes that the situation is more complicated uh, than he thought. And whereas in his first encounter with Ward Bond, he seems to be finding common cause with Bond, when he meets Ida Lupino, who is also alone and isolated, it activates the other side of his personality and makes him want to reach out and try to help her and save the boy. We, we needn't go any further than that because it'll give away the key plot elements uh, of the last part of the film. But um, suffice it to say that what we have here is a study of a divided soul who is trying, perhaps against his will, to find his way towards some kind of redemption. Yes, and the second half of the film is supposed to answer a lot of the mysteries about his personality that the first half sets up. As you put it, he's, he lives in this small, measly place that's very well suited to him because there's nothing and nobody there. He can't let the job alone even at dinner before going on the on his night shift. It's only kids around the block want to throw ball with him, or play a bit of pitch and catch when they see him, and he finds that slightly unnatural at this point because he's gone so far from whatever the promise of his youth was. And he, he's let crime become too personal a matter for him. He becomes more sadistic because these people will not stop being criminals. But he doesn't have any insight into his condition until he meets Ida Lupino, whose dialogue with him is very striking. One of the... She senses immediately 
that he is lonely and isolated in the same way that she is. She has found contentment in her loyalty to her brother and into the world of nature that surrounds her. And she she says something uh, I find very striking to him. She says, sometimes people who are never alone are the loneliness. Sometimes or other, most lonely people try to figure it out about loneliness. And you can read off the face of this supremely gifted actor, his recognition that she is saying something that, that is true to his sense of self and to his personal dilemma. Yeah, in the first half, he tries to identify his own personal problems with the problem of justice in the city. Instead of trying to figure out why he's so angry, he thinks about the fact that there's very good reason to be angry when there's murders going around. And of course, the first half ends with a gruesome murder that really shows you it's really hard to keep your sanity when you're supposed to enforce the law in a lawless place. But in the second half, he has to confront this blind woman, and this sets up a beautiful theatric situation where she can't be afraid of him like everybody's afraid of him because... He didn't bring his reputation with him, and she cannot see what a heavy he is. Yeah, another line. Another great line from the script. She's she's asking him what it's like to be a policeman, and he says, "You get so you don't trust anybody." And her reply is, "You're lucky. I have to trust everybody." Yeah, and there you see that he has a certain fear for his reputation and a certain sense of shame. He deals with criminals so often that he hates above all being played for a sucker. Yeah. He cannot afford to trust anybody. He doesn't want to become the quintessential film noir chump. Exactly. Uh, I mean, this is... On Dangerous Ground is not a formulaic film noir. There is no uh, uh, fun fatale. There's no woman who is tempting him to evil. He is already allied with the dark side of the force in the first third of the film. And uh, uh, the woman brings him back out of it. And yet the atmosphere and the, the, the whole feel of the film is so powerfully noir-like that, that you just reflexively think of this film, even, even though it doesn't fit the formula, as a noir film about city life and its effects on the soul. Uh, and the presence of Ida Lupino also helps with that, too. Uh, she is... She's, it's funny, in recent years, I think people tend now to talk about her as a director because she was one of the first women uh, to direct successfully for film and TV. And her work as an actor is not as well remembered and I think not as well admired. But in fact, she was an extraordinarily gifted actor and this is one of her most sensitive and and telling performances. She's really equal to the challenge of, even though we we think of her in most of her roles as being tough uh, in a film like Roadhouse, for example. Uh, But uh, this woman, she has been toughened by life and by her own suffering, but there is nothing tough about her in that sense at all. She is, uh, she's a woman who exists to protect her brother and to try to save her new friend. Yeah, this again brings out what range there is for actors within what is a very gloomy genre. For all the changes from a black city to a snowy mountainous rural area, 
the driving quality of the action and the fear that the score uh, enhances unify the story and emphasize what fear really looks like. It's not Robert Ryan's sense of honor, it's Ida Lupino's helplessness. It's the fact that, as she says, she has to trust everybody. She can't deceive people and she can't protect herself from anybody who might deceive her. And this is something new. Robert Ryan had never seen this before, somebody who is almost entirely helpless and for that reason far more trustworthy than anybody else. That's right. Somebody with a predicament far worse than his and because of whom he himself learns what helplessness is like. He can't do right by this woman exactly and he feels the need to protect her from a man who is exactly himself. Word Bond plays a character who feels about justice exactly what Robert Ryan feels, but unlike him, has a tangible motive for it. It is not an abstract question of justice or a job. It's his child. Let's talk about Word Bond for a moment. Uh, in life, he was a dreadful bore, a, a perfectly frightful man about whom there seems to be nothing good to say, although many people, John Wayne liked him very much, uh, John Ford liked him very much. Uh, and so I, I think the people who know about this side of Bond's character, they often don't realize how good a character actor he is. He's actually a remarkable character actor. Uh, started playing er small roles uh, in the early 40s. He pops up in films like uh, 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 The Maltese Falcon, for example. Uh, and then people, starting with John Ford, realized that there was more to him than that. He's, all, he's physically large, he's bluff, uh, he can be funny, he's very direct, but he also has access to the ability to project sensitivity and feeling, something that Ford recognized. Ford actually cast him as a clergyman in The Searchers. And in this film, he starts out as an outraged father who wants vigilante justice. And by the end of the film, again, without giving away what actually happens, uh, he, too, is transformed. Uh, and so instead of uh, Robert Ryan's gravitating toward the, the, the hate and anger in, in Ward Bond, it goes in the other direction, and, and Bond is pulled out of the, out of the quicksand of, of, of anger and transformed into a human being, into a person with the spirit of a father again. You can't, no matter what he was like as a man, you can't play that kind of role convincingly unless there's something to you as an artist. And while we don't, it, it seems sort of odd to use the word artist in connection with a, a personality like Warren Bond, but the truth is that when you've seen a lot of his character roles, you realize that as an actor, he was an artist, and I think never more so than in this, this fine film which expects something difficult and complex out of him and gets it. Yeah. The, uh, the shift in the movie turns out to be from a world dominated by violence to a world where people concern themselves with saving in whatever way possible innocence and the possibility of innocence. And this requires both, both Robert Ryan and Ward Bond even more so because he gets less screen time and is more driven by revenge in, in the half of the movie he's present. It requires of them an unusually sensitive portrayal of the roots of a concern for justice in love of human beings 
and how that can be lost or, or uh, forgotten and how tragedy can help restore it and what a transformative, what a shocking event it is to realize that you're on the brink of losing your humanity and uh, even more so perhaps that people you hate should not be deprived of their humanity either. Right. As obvious as it is, as the visual symbolism of the film is, uh, the fact that it begins in darkness and ends in light is executed in this film with, with extraordinary sensitivity. Virtually the entire first part of the film takes place at night, other than a, a scene where, where uh, uh, Robert Ryan is meeting at Begley in a restaurant. Everything is happening. You feel like everything's happening at 2 in the morning. And then in the transitional scene in which uh, Ryan drives north into the mountains, we see over, I think it's about, probably takes about 30 seconds, the, the climate is changing as the altitude changes, and suddenly he is in snow-covered country, and the palette of the film has essentially changed from all black to all white. Uh, it is one of the most startlingly effective uses of black-and-white cinematography that you'll find in a film of the 50s. Uh, and that, when I say it here into the microphone, it just seems like, oh, well, how on the nose, how obvious can you be? Believe me, it's not. One of the reasons why it's not is because of the music that is accompanying this transformation, which brings us to the great Bernard Herrmann. Um, I, this and Fahrenheit 451, I think, are possibly Herrmann's greatest non-Hitchcock scores. Um, and it's because this film engages his romanticism, uh, the most the, most, the strongest element in Herman's makeup as, as a composer is Romanticism. There isn't all that much music in the first third of the film. Uh, and Herman is very careful, as he always is, it's one of his, his best tricks, if you want to put it that way, to withhold music, to not use it in obvious places, to not underscore scenes of physical violence, but to wait until a card turns and the emotions change. Uh, and so we have a main title cue, which will be used again late in the film for a scene of violent pursuit. Uh, but after that, uh, the music shuts down until we are to be told that this violent, sadistic cop is in fact a lonely, sensitive man. And then suddenly, Herman appears on the soundtrack with the most exquisite cue underlining, un underlining uh, Robert Ryan's deepest emotions. Uh, and you don't, no words are necessary. In fact, there really, I, there are almost no words at all in the two scenes where we see Ryan alone in his flat. It's just him, his face, his movements, the, the way the scene is dressed to show this shabby, empty place he lives in, and Bernard Herman's music to tell us the emotions. But as the film moves into the natural world and the palette moves from black to white, the music becomes much more present, much more clear. And then when Ida Lupino appears in the film for the first time and we realize we are shown that she is blind, we hear a, a, a piece of film scoring as great as any piece of classical music of this, of this period, uh, a lament uh, a, a stoic but 
terribly moving lament for her condition. The cue is called blindness, and it is led by somebody playing a rare stringed instrument called the viola d'amour, the viola of love. Uh, it's played by Virginia Majewski, one of the great string players of the West Coast during that period. She played with Yasha Heifetz, and Herman loved her playing so much that he gave her a credit at the beginning of the film. She shares his title card. There is no higher tribute. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of, of any other individual instrumentalist who was given that kind of credit in a, in a classic Golden Age Hollywood film. That's how important the music of this, this movie is. Uh, it is what humanizes the situation for us. It, it, I mean, it doesn't tell us what to feel. It doesn't tell us how to feel. But as Herman always said, it, it underlined, it, it brought out the immediate experience of what is happening on the screen and heightened it and poeticized it. Uh, it it's, I, I can't say enough good things about this score. Uh, whose climax uh, is something entirely different from what we've been talking about. Uh, it, the Great Pursuit, when uh, Ward Bond and uh, Robert Ryan think they've found the culprit and chase him through the mountains, which is popularly known as the Death Hunt Scherzo, uh, is written for an orchestra that contains eight French horns, which are playing uh, hunting calls, uh, just like what you'd expect, only wild, dissonant, and crazy with the percussionist banging a metal plate in the background. It's the most terrifying piece of film scoring you can imagine. There's Just as there's a lot of range in the performances and in the cinematography, there's a huge emotional range in this score. Yes, and uh, it, it shows what, what a remarkable coming together of actors, director, cinematographer, and score uh, this movie has to offer to say certain things that are true, like the hunting calls that you mentioned, they're supposed to suggest, again, this is not a work of great subtlety, but it is true that the hunters are the savages in this case. And so also with the, uh, the, the fact that in the natural half of the movie, sound emerges. Again, it tells something that really is true in the city. Because of his job, because of his life, because of the misery he's undergoing, he cannot be aware of himself. There are always other things to oppress him and at the same time to distract him from himself. Whereas in this other situation, because he's a stranger, all of a sudden it is possible to tell certain true things about him, especially as he becomes uh, aware that there is innocence left in the world. And it's really true to the experience of city life, you know. I, my wife and I, we, we commute from an apartment in the city to, to one in the country in Connecticut. And... Uh, you know, I, that makes you very sensitive to the fact that when you live in a city like New York, it's noisy. There's an enormous amount of noise. You get used to it because it's what you live with. Uh, but it, it fills up the background of your consciousness. And then suddenly, when, when we drive up to Connecticut uh, and we're in the woods, there is no natural sound. If, if, it's, if it's windy, you hear the leaves uh, rustling in the trees. And suddenly you have room in your consciousness for a different kind of range of emotions. And I find I want music more when I'm there. Uh, and that's in a way what's happening to Robert Ryan in this film. When he's in the city, there's no room for music, whether symbolic or literal. 
there's just car horns and guns firing and people yelling and, and uh, newsboys uh, crying out. And then when you drive up the mountains uh, and the snow starts to fall, there is a silence that can be filled by emotion and the music of Bernard Herrmann that is its symbolic analog. Yes, and of course the music also helps because of the character. Robert Ryan doesn't play a talker, just like Ida Lupino is, who has a talent for words and clearly has, is a far more reflective person, not least of all because she's very intelligent. But she's not much of a talker because of her loneliness. Right. And music then can step in to express in a sincere, persuasive way something that you can guess at in the characters' movements and their faces, but you couldn't quite put words to otherwise. It's for something as, you know, music is not what dominates in film. In fact, it seems completely silly or frivolous compared to what you could see on screen, the, especially in cases where it's death, murder, suffering. But in fact, it gives such solidity to characterization and such depth that if you were to watch such things without well-chosen music or with badly chosen music, right. All of a sudden, you would realize that you don't believe the drama anymore because the characters don't sell it. They can't. This characterizes them. Film noir tends to have good scores. Uh, at MGM, you had uh, Nicholas Rocha, uh, a major classical composer who, when he worked in this idiom uh, and scored films like The Killers or Brute Force uh, or Naked City, uh, adds exactly the kind of, of, of heightened emotionality that we're talking about. Uh, this is, I think this is Herman's only noir score, uh, but it's quintessential. It's straight out of the world of his Hitchcock film, so much so that he actually used one of the, he reused one of the cues in this film in North by Northwest. Yes, uh, uh, or Roy Webb at RKO, who is a much underrated composer, uh, who, when he was called on to write commercial music, wrote commercial music. But when he was called on to write emotionally intensifying serious music, which is what noirs require, uh, provided that as well. Uh, I'm surprised by, I, I, I'm a score noticer because I'm a musician, but I'm always surprised by how often, maybe two times out of three, uh, the best noir films typically have good scores, even from unknown studio craftsmen like Paul Sautel, uh, uh, the genre seems to have brought out the best in people, not just film composers. It seems to have brought out the best in virtually everybody who gets involved with it. Yeah, I think it was the most romantic of the American genres, except the Western. Isn't that funny? I mean, you are exactly right. But what a thing to say about a genre that in its own time wasn't even recognized as a genre. It was simply something that you went to to see a crime story. Uh, on a sat at a Saturday matinee uh, with a couple of stars that you liked or somebody like Robert Mitchum. And yet, we now receive noir as an intensely romantic genre and a tragic one. Yes, a exactly. word that nobody would have used to describe these films when they were new in the late 40s and early 50s. Yeah, it's strange that, in a sense, we can't see the movies quite as fresh now because... Now they're noirs, they're not just the movies they are, but back then they didn't take them quite so seriously because they, they were held in strange contempt. And you could say that the fact that they portray ugly things 
led respectable people to thinking that the movies themselves were ugly, that this is not what should be portrayed. Whereas in fact they allowed for for something that's uh, that's been with us since Aristotle told us that we need tragedy. It shows dark sides in our soul that we daren't confront otherwise. Like it or not, we will have to go on with normal lives. You can't have this kind of music and you can't have these kinds of shadows in everyday life. It would be unbearable. But all the more does it become important and persuasive and revelatory when you do it in story form. And it seems like the genre managed to gather up all these disparate talents that did not have anything in common by way of background or... Uh, uh, or, or institutional arrangements, but instead had a certain sensibility, and as their thoughts bent towards the tragedy involved in noir, they became clearer and clearer as artists, and capable of doing in various combinations incredible things. These yeah. are stories that last. I think there is truth to the conventional wisdom about noir. It is, it is distinctively, specifically, a post-World War II genre. You have people coming back from the war who have seen things that they never expected to see and probably never even imagined. Uh, not just the violence of combat, but the revelation after the war of what the Nazis were doing to exterminate the Jews. Um, there is a real loss of innocence in American life after World War II. And I think it created unconsciously an appetite for films that partook of a genuinely tragic vision of life. You don't see as much of that in the in the 30s and the early part of the 40s. Uh, uh, you don't see so many films that have unequivocally unhappy, tragic endings, except for the Weepers, you know, the Betty Davis movies, things like that, which are, those are melodramas, that's a different thing. A film noir, in a sense, is a melodrama, but it's a melodrama which is emotionally realistic. And it accepts that lives go wrong and stories end badly and that people make wrong choices that lead to death and destruction. And that is a, that's a knowledge that was put in the consciousness of a young country uh, by a war unimaginably violent, more violent than anything since the American Civil War, uh, and a war that introduced the idea of genocide uh, to the American consciousness. So it's, it's, when you look at it that way, it's not surprising that we should suddenly have been open to this kind of film. Uh, the, the desire for this kind of filmmaking is so powerful that it even invades one of the most optimistic of all film genres, which is the Western. Movies in which there are black hats and white hats and you always know who the good guy is and that's part of their charm, but suddenly after World War II, you start to see a different kind of Western in which these ideas, these themes, are turned loose on the, the national mythic landscape. And you end up even getting more like Westerns like Robert Wise's Blood on the Moon, which is with Robert Mitchum, one of the great noir actors, it might just as well be a film noir, except they're on horses. But uh, the atmosphere is different, uh, extending all the way down to high noon. Uh, and of course, the Anthony Mann, Jimmy Stewart. Pictures. Yes, yes, Anthony Mann, who is uh, not near, I mean, he's like 
Film connoisseurs, he's well known too, but he's not known by name to most film buffs, not in the way that Howard Hawks or Alfred Hitchcock are. Uh, and yet, Anthony Mann, and just to take a quick diversion here, he ties up with the quintessential 30s, 40s good guy of film, Jimmy Stewart, someone who you would never have expected if you only knew his earlier work as an actor to have access to the darkest part of the human soul. And yet in the Westerns that they made together, we discovered that Jimmy Stewart, who was, lest we forget, a war hero, a combat pilot, who knew and when he would talk about his experience, he didn't like to talk about it, as most American men didn't. He talked about the fear that he knew uh, flying bombing missions over Europe. and suddenly he comes back from the war. He makes It's a Wonderful Life, an extraordinarily dark film, not, not a tragedy in the way that we describe it, but one that understands tragedy. And then a series of westerns with Anthony Mann, uh, in which he is somebody who, whose soul has been touched by the desire for vengeance and uh, a capacity for, for violence that borders on sadism. He's the last person in the world you expect of it. The war has changed him as well. Yes, that is very much true. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you can't take it with you. That sort of Jimmy Stewart disappeared. They stopped making funny or silly movies after the war, like so many other artists. And he instead discovered this entire new problem. How could you defend justice or human goodness when experience replaces innocence to talk in romantic categories? And this made for remarkable films, and it gave a depth to artists and to genres that they didn't quite have before. And it allowed for new forms of storytelling, where human experience could bring out the dark side of the soul, precisely because, like you said, American men didn't talk about the war. And of course... My father never talked about the war, ever. Uh, It just was... I mean, he didn't see combat, but he was he was in the Philippines, and uh, it was not a memory that he wanted to share. And I can't tell you how I'm 62, and I can't tell you how many uh, men of my generation will say the same thing about their fathers. They didn't want to talk about it, but when they went to the movies, they could understand their experience. I think by seeing films like this and thinking about what they tell us about the human potential for good and bad alike. Yeah, I think that it made movies more plausible to an audience that for the first time had the judgment, had the discernment and an experience that made them apt to decide for themselves, is this really what human beings are like? Is this really what uh, human things and human nature are made of? And that's a, of course, it's no compensation for loss of innocence exactly, but it does make for wiser movie making. Yeah, I wouldn't, I don't for a minute want to suggest that I sneer at the sweetness and idealism of pre war American film. It too is a part of the national character. But I have to say that, again, as a, as a man of 62 who has lived through, uh, as a child was aware of the 60s, lived through the 70s, um, that period saw one of the great changes 
in critical perception of film, and that is the recognition that film noir is, in fact, one of the most important genres of American filmmaking. It wasn't perceived as that until until people started to call it by its name. You know, I mean, they weren't making film noirs in the 40s. They were making crime movies. Um, and part of it is just that for people of my generation uh, who... Uh, I was just a couple of years away from the possibility of service in Vietnam before the war ended. Um, I saw the disorder of American society. Uh, I have now lived into uh, a time when there is an enormous amount of anger and disorder in our society. And I find that film noir, both in its tragic honesty, but also in its in its genuinely romantic sense of of human emotionality, it speaks to me. It speaks very powerfully to me. These these rather low-budget films that were made in the 40s uh, uh, before I was born uh, that were not taken very seriously when they came out, um, they speak to me as do the really great neo-noirs like Chinatown and Night Moves uh, made in the, the 70s. Uh, as much as any film genre there is, and on dangerous ground, uh, underrated though it was, and to some extent unknown though it was, now stands out in very high relief uh, among the best of these films. And a tribute to its quality is the fact that the last five minutes of the film were recut by the studio and changed in ways not intended either by uh, the screenwriters or, or by uh, Nicholas Ray. Uh, it, in a way, it's really quite shocking uh, because on dangerous ground, uh, I won't be specific about it, but it has been given a happy ending. Uh, and you really, even if you don't know that the film was recut, if you're paying attention, you realize that something startling has happened in the last few minutes of the film. Uh, the, the actual film-making language is starting to look different, and that's because uh, Nicholas Ray didn't direct those last scenes. Ida Lupino had to step in and direct them. He was absent, uh, and they were recut by other hands. Uh, very few films are so good that they can survive that kind of mishandling. This one does, uh, for all the, the, the lack of emotional truth, that you feel at the fade out, it doesn't matter. You still understand that you've seen a great film. Um, and just like I think most people feel that way with The Magnificent Ambersons, Orson Welles' second feature, a film that was also grossly, it had its ending recut by the studio and it was, it was hacked around. Uh, one of the great tragedies of American filmmaking. And yet we still now, because we can never know what the original was like, uh, the, the footage was destroyed, I think we still receive it as a, a film of tremendously high and compelling quality, even though it has been mishandled. It's still, it's more than a torso. And uh, On Dangerous Ground is much more than a torso, except for that ending, which feels tacked on. Uh, it is one of the noirs that I come back to more often than any other. I I rank it right up there with better-known examples of the genre like Out of the Past and uh, in Lonely Place. Honestly, it's I think it's that good. I think it's that good. 
everybody is giving of their best in this wonderful movie. Yeah, I think you're right. And the distinction between Nicholas Ray's vision and the tact on ending again suggests that there was perhaps too much social criticism in the noir. It was introducing audiences to a view of America and it was asking of them to experience and to think about certain things that studios didn't really want to face audiences with and perhaps the audiences really didn't want it either. I don't entirely blame the producers or the studio executives. It's perhaps the case that Nicolas Ray pushed the envelope. Actually, Nicolas Ray always pushed the envelope. Right. So, and, and lest we forget, this film was made by a studio controlled by Howard Hughes, who was a man who had no interest whatsoever in art and whose entire approach to filmmaking is actually quite bizarre. I mean, he's a man who seems to have been primarily interested in the female bosom and uh, um, that any part of this film got released is kind of a miracle when you think about it. Um, uh, but that ending, we were talking about this a moment ago before we started typing. Uh, I think part of the reason why the ending works in its cruder, more Hollywood-like way is because it, too, has been scored by Bernard Herrmann, a great romantic, who has clearly decided, as a composer, to take seriously the happy ending, uh, to accept it as true and possible and consistent with his own sense of romanticism. Um, and, and when you have a great film composer writing emotionally true music for a, a scene that in the absence of that kind of music wouldn't necessarily convince. Very interesting things can happen on the screen. Um, there aren't all that many examples, oddly enough, of mediocre films that have been saved by great scores. Uh, as a general rule, it is the great film that elicits the great score. But this is a rare and striking example of a film where studio interference was ameliorated by the best work of a major film composer. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any other example of that. I'm sure there is one, but it's not coming to mind. Yeah, me neither. And uh, it's worth dwelling on because where the studio wanted to just get a happy end there, you don't want people to leave the theater on a downer note. Where the Bernard Herrmann, on the other hand, had something to say about what he thought love and forgiveness could do in the face of tragedy. Yes. And that makes a, a whole hell of a lot of a difference. We have a, an obligation, I think, to judge works of art for what is best about them uh, and to accept their flaws uh, and to not be to not be silly and disdainful about... I, I mean, think about what Hollywood is like. The fact that any of these films were made, much less that they became popular and commercially successful, is kind of amazing when you think about how Hollywood worked, what it was out to do, the fact that it was concerned exclusively uh, with selling tickets. And yet these films, because they could be made quite cheaply, uh, even with with high-quality actors, uh, they, they weren't too hard to decorate. You could do a lot of location shooting. Uh, you could shoot them faster because of the of the different kinds of lighting requirements. Uh, you could bring a noir in for a, a reasonable budget, and so the, the studio let you get away with it. 
It's the same thing with Westerns. Westerns really started to get interesting in the 50s. And nobody paid any attention in the studio. All they cared about was, are we selling tickets? And a Western can be made very cheaply. And they were selling tickets. And the result of that was films like the, the movies that Bud Bedecker made with Randolph Scott, which uh, they don't even, some of them don't even have any interior shots at all. And yet they are very profound morality plays. Uh, and uh, we, 50, 60, 70 years later, can watch these movies and say, how on earth did this get made? And I, I, I feel this every time I see you on Dangerous Ground. This is, despite the failings of the last five minutes, a very, very grown-up movie. Yes, that is very well put, and I think it's it, these are important lessons today as well. Technological changes have again made it possible for artists who are dedicated enough and who have a real grasp of what the medium is and what their setting is to get in stories that don't come in on a blockbuster budget, and for that reason that earn them a certain freedom and you can think of genre and genre requirements by studios and for audiences and codes and what have you as in a certain sense a form of defense against studios that uh, chase after profits because that tends to make producers and executives disdainful of smaller projects of projects that don't have glamour but it gives artists a form of freedom. If they have the discipline, and if they can get it in cheap and reliably, they can achieve remarkable things. What is Where this has moved over to, of course, is television, uh, where suddenly, because of the new economic model that drives television, which is the subscriber model, you can have people like David Simon, who, uh, in, this, in the traditional, and our traditional understanding of what a hit TV show is, David Simon's never had one. Uh, but because of the nature of the new economic model, it is possible for him to do really mature, emotionally serious genre uh, filming uh, on the installment plan and make enough money to satisfy the requirements. Uh, I, I, that fascinates me. I mean, television, television when I was young wasn't like this. Uh, it only started to be in the 80s. Uh, and I, I think this, the mentality that drove film noir and the adult western in the 50s, we now are more likely to find uh, in the best series TV of the present moment. Uh, and, and similar people who understand the genius of the system. Sometime we'll have to do an episode about cartoons, because they're the same way. Uh, as long as you got it out in 10 minutes and didn't go over budget at Warner Brothers or MGM, you could do anything you wanted. And that's how you got Chuck Jones and, and people like that, uh, because nobody was paying attention to anything other than the bottom line. It's funny how liberating an economic system can be when it lets you do what you want so long as you make money. Uh, I, I have mixed feelings about the taste of the American public, but the fact that they loved film noir and Bugs Bunny cartoons and great westerns. It says something good about us. Yeah, it certainly does. And uh, so, and also is something constant in the national character, just like people still laugh at Huck Finn, they still laugh at Bugs Bunny, yeah. and they're still horrified by film noir in just the right way. Yeah. So these things are still there to be tapped into, and you're right, TV can get it uh, nowadays. Uh, nowadays. 
so long of course as people don't go crazy with their new freedoms or their new budgets one right. expects that this will also leads to excesses and the inevitable collapse but let's enjoy it in the meanwhile there are rare achievements out there then the, and they find their audience which is also one thing that's uh, very much to be said in favor of the american system of making uh, all these uh, stories whether on tv or on the internet nowadays, there are ways to find an audience that will appreciate these things and make sure they are remembered, that they last. I think the great limitation of American film, which is also its glory, is that for the most part, it does its best work in clearly defined genres. Um, this limits what is possible for these films. Uh, we typically do not have films that have the same effect as great novels. We don't... Hollywood doesn't make films like a genre, like Jean Renoir did, as Renoir learned when he came to Hollywood, where it was very difficult for him to function, although he pulled it off a couple of times. Um, but if you're willing to accept the limitations of, of genre and work within them, uh, then much is possible to you. Uh, the only problem with Hollywood is that you must accept the limitations. Um, you really, uh, I mean, when I think about the great TV series of the last 10 or 15 years, they're all about crime. Crime's a great subject, but it's not the only subject. And that's, that is also the limitation of noir. And the miracle of noir is that within its limitations, uh, it can give us films like uh, On Dangerous Ground, which are nominally studies of, of urban sadness and alienation. Uh, and they're also, uh, well, they're not, not nominally, they're nominally the crime movies, but in reality, they're studies of loneliness and alienation and, and disillusion. Um, there's nothing wrong with that as a subject matter. It's a great subject matter. It's just not the only subject matter. Yeah. I think that's true, and uh, of course the genres keep uh, inflating or collapsing as audience taste changes, which is uh, often unfortunate. Great things are lost, entire arts of movie making are lost in one generation or another. But there are still opportunities, and uh, that's the that's the deal you have to make. You have to be okay with the genre, and then to ask yourself. If you're not disdainful, if you think that this tells important truths about some part of America, what is there in the conventions of the genre that is true? Where there can you find artistic freedom to tell the truth about certain characters in certain situations and to reflect on society only indirectly through that story, through that setting, through those characters? And American artists are often very good at this specific job. The system wouldn't work otherwise. The trick is to always give your best, never to make films with self-contempt, never to condescend to the, even to the audience itself. Who can doubt that in On Dangerous Ground, and Nicholas Ray, and Robert Ryan, and Ida Lupino, and Bernard Herrmann, and George Discant, the uh, cinematographer, are all giving of the very best that they have in them to make a crime movie that is more than just a crime movie. Uh, that is that is the beauty of the Hollywood studio system at its very best, in my opinion. And we see it here in this beautiful, beautiful film. Yes, yes, that is certainly the case. And 
Of course, Nicholas Ray had a very fraught relationship with Hollywood, and it didn't end well for him, as it didn't end well for, say, Sam Peckinpah and other such directors. But for a while, you know, impressive things were possible for him through these studios. And uh, another one we intend to talk about, of course, is In a Lonely Place, a rare achievement even by Bogart standards, was a very loved actor, and a rare achievement in adult dramatic romance. And perhaps that should be our next discussion, because it is my favorite Humphrey Bogart film, probably my favorite film noir, maybe one of my half dozen favorite studio system films. That's a whole lot of favorites right there. Uh, yeah comes highly recommended. It's a movie I've loved for a long time. And so, folks, watch it, and you'll hear us talk about it in a couple of weeks. Yes, that will be my pleasure. Terry, thank you for inviting me here. Thank you for joining me again on the podcast, and let's do this again soon. Yes, and, and this, if you didn't grasp it, listeners, this is the first time, actually, that Titus and I have been in the same room at the same time. It is even possible to do podcasts the old-fashioned way. <laughs> All the best, Terry. Till next time. Bye.